Hoffman here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers, and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit. Okay, so it's free to sign up. Yeah, we're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to, say, $300,000. And we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So you have to go out and sell your product. You have to pitch your services. You have to know how to source prospects and you have to be very comfortable talking to them. And so that's something that went a long way to helping me establish that core. I didn't know that at the time. To me at the time, it was just an interesting thing to do. Kind of the whole saga of being an immigrant from USSR to America could literally be like one of those lifetime movies, one of those dramas where things are kind of on the edge constantly. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that that's the most interesting part of the entrepreneurial journey, right? Which is... So it was me, my mom, my uncle, my grandma, and my grandpa in a two-bedroom apartment. I started going to bed and thinking to myself, you know, I want my kids to grow up to be better versions of myself. And how can I tell them to go out and be better versions of myself if I don't show them and I don't lead them by example? Hey, Energetic Austin here. Just wanted to let you guys know that we did have a group call with Igor, who you're about to hear on this very interview. So check out Group Call 10, where we have video and audio footage of Igor breaking down websites one by one and showing them what they could do better with their SEO strategies. Again, that's Group Call 10 for all Patreon members. Now, on to this show. My name is Igor Avedon. I am the founder and the CEO of Avedon Marketing Group. We are a boutique digital marketing and content marketing agency. Our flagship product is search engine optimization, and we really focus on helping brands, large and small, grow either their local or their national presence. Can you just tell us how big the company is and give us a little bit of a rundown? Sure. So we are, like I said, we're a digital marketing agency. We are a boutique agency. And that is done on purpose. And we'll probably get more into that as we discuss our history and how we got to where we are today. And so we specialize in helping brands that are ready to grow, that are ready to invest in their own growth, to helping them have that kind of a digital media exposure and a content marketing exposure. In terms of size, like I said, we keep a pretty small team. Usually it actually fluctuates between about half a dozen to a dozen team members. 
that depends on our client size. So sometimes we will pick up a blue, kind of like a blue chip company campaign that we're supporting. At that point, we will have to temporarily staff out more riders or more technicians to work with us. But generally speaking, we're usually no larger than a dozen team members. In terms of our growth, we've actually grown year over year on average by about 25% each year. We are not breaking the 1 million annual recurring revenue yet, but certainly that's just, that kind of goes along with it, you know, with being boutique and really making the choices of how do we scale up while maintaining our high quality. What's a marketing agency? That's an interesting question. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, I hear so many people say it and I'm just like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's a great question. So a marketing agency is basically, I think of it as a partner as a partner who helps you grow your brand presence. Basically what it does is it allows you to focus on your business while taking care of a lot of the marketing needs that are necessary in order to get your products or services in front of your audience. So that usually means if you want to think about it in terms of traditional advertising and traditional PR, you're usually kind of putting placement ads on billboards, into magazines, into newspapers. Nowadays, everything is digital, everything is online. The digital space has really grown kind of aggressively over the last decade. And what we do is we essentially take those traditional means of generating business and we translate them to online. So basically the channels and the mediums that used to work in the traditional advertising and marketing sense. Now we're doing those same kind of activities. We're applying similar strategies in the digital space. Why I wanted to have you on too is like, it seems like you started your business only a couple of years ago. Some of the people I interview, they're like 10, 20, 30 years into it. And so they might forget some of the beginning stuff. And obviously it seems like you're still shooting to grow your business and want to make it bigger and better. But I think it's always important to have some people on who are still in the thick of it, just in the beginning stages. Absolutely. I would consider us to be in the kind of, in the growing stage, but certainly we're nowhere near where we want to be or where we can be really. I think we do tremendous work and I don't want to lose any quality while scaling up. And I think that's always an important question to ask when you're trying to achieve more success in your business. Are you known for a certain niche? I'm just trying to see how it comes together for your company and why people come to you versus someone else, if you will. Sure. I think that, again, digital marketing, it involves a number of different things, right? So it really has anything to do with marketing either online or through the digital medium. And so we primarily focus on organic, right? So organic search traffic, people finding businesses, you know, our partner brands, some, you know, other agencies will refer to them as clients. I prefer to them as partner brands. We basically make sure that people find them online. There are definitely certain niches that where we do really well. So for example, in the cannabis niche, we, you know, we have a number of clients and we've helped them grow. That particular specialty comes from just my background in cannabis. Unfortunately, I can't partake. I have a, I'm one of the unfortunate souls who reacts negatively to cannabis. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that I am one of the unfortunate people who gets paranoia and anxiety if I ever try it. So I don't basically... I saw you just toke up right before this interview. So this could be an interesting interview. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you know, all of a sudden you just hear me running off with a bunch of noise in the background, that just probably means that the interview is over. I've overdone it. Yeah. Started kicking in. But yeah. So you said the cannabis niche is, I guess also you say niche, I say niche. So tomato, tomato, right? <laughs> I'm a little bit more background, I guess. I'm a, you know, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 12. There are definitely times when maybe my pronunciation isn't perfect. <laughs> It goes both ways. It really is like tomato, tomato. You know, I've heard both on this podcast because I asked that. So yeah, cannabis you've dealt with. Any other ones? Yeah. I mean, in the travel space, 
Actually, our first client was in the luxury travel space, and we really helped them grow a lot, Villaway. We are very proud of our results there. The thing about it is we're marketers, and the one thing that people have to understand is that when you're talking to a professional marketer, generally speaking, they will be the competent ones will basically tell you that, look, they are industry agnostic, right? It doesn't matter what industry you're in. What matters is how good are your ideas? How creative are you and how well do you do your research, right? How well do you do your homework and how do you apply that homework towards that creativity for marketing the company and its uh, products and or services? No, I agree with you. But anyone who's listening right now, I just think the more groups that you can list off, the more they can visualize like who you've helped. So yeah, do you even have some more clients or examples that you can list off first and then we'll reel it back to how you got started with this business or even when you came to America? Sure. So we've helped a number of clients. So for example, in the tech space, we've had financial technology clients. We've had clients who are e-commerce based. So people who sell products online. One of our most recent success stories and still a current partner with us is AED Leader. So essentially, they actually distribute the FDA-approved defibrillator devices for your home and for your offices. There are other kind of B2B services like Gaika. They basically kind of provide end-to-end management of your cannabis waste solutions. So they ensure compliance. They started in California, but they're rolling out nationwide. We have local clients like CPA firms. So for example, Lillian and Black, who are a terrific firm. They've actually also been uh, handling our financials, and they also rank really well in Los Angeles for accounting and CPA terms. We have national cannabis chain of green clinics, so green health docs. They've also we've helped them grow quite a bit as well. So really, it's all over the place. We also just recently got a cosmetic dentist that we're working with. who's a terrific guy named Arthur Glossman. Generally speaking, it really is all over the place. Well, how do you actually find your clients? Generally speaking, they find us. So we, by and large, I would say about 80 to 90% of our business comes through word of mouth referrals. So because our clients are happy, they essentially send us other clients. We do generate some interest organically as well. So for example, one of the things that we, you know, that I've kind of put a greater emphasis on in order to help us grow is to apply a lot of the things that we do for our clients to our own agency. So oddly enough, we've actually neglected our own website and we haven't really done a lot of business development through the organic channel, but we are investing in that as of a few months ago, we started to go a little bit more aggressive with it. Funny, because I've heard that too before. They're like, if you're interested in an SEO company, check out their website. And they say like 90% of them do no SEO on their own SEO company. You're like, why they do not do that? But it sounds like, yeah, you got over that hurdle. And again, it's kind of like you're actually working on the business now instead of just getting stuff done, I guess, to an extent. So I've seen the difference too, actually, because I think we got connected maybe six months ago. So I can definitely tell you've added some stuff to your website here as well. So is there anything else we should know before we reel back to you coming to America? I think we've got it pretty good. You know, I think that as we talk through the kind of the background and how and why everything happened over the last few years, I think that will provide enough insights. Okay, cool. So where were you born? I was born in Moscow, Russia in uh, 1983. That was a very interesting time. I remember growing up there and boy, oh boy, am I, let's just say that my appreciation for America stems from how terrible of a time was had in post-perestroika Russia. Yeah. So what was that like? I don't know if I've had a Russian on yet. You might be our first Russian. So what was it like growing up there? All right. I love being the first of something. So growing up in Soviet Russia was very interesting. Actually, by the time I can remember things, it was actually pretty much close to its collapse. So USSR, by the time basically Gorbachev came to power and said, you know what, there's no more USSR, right? Let's uh, break down the wall in Germany. Let's be nice and friendly with everybody. Let's let all these republics go. 
what happened was really the country was just in shambles. I mean, growing up there, I remember distinctly one of the few things that, or one of the many things really, but one of the few things that I remember that are really astonishing to me as an adult is that sometimes some of my friends would actually come visit me and have dinner at my house. And I realize now it's because at times I don't think they had dinner at home. Just thinking back about that and really it still makes me kind of paranoid of, you know, <laughs> any potential for any kind of economic collapse around me, but also makes me very grateful for the opportunities that America provided for us and uh, how absolutely wonderful it's been being here. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh offers 23 plus recipes each week, featuring a range of flavors, cuisines, and ingredients so you'll never get bored. Eating healthier has never been easier with low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and piscatarian options every week. And no matter what you choose, every single recipe is packed with fresh produce sourced directly from farmers. See, I just got my HelloFresh package in last night and I unwrapped it like a kid on Christmas. And oh my, were the presents inside better than anything I got from old St. Nick? They had recipes galore and I was amazed at how fresh and quickly I was able to throw together a tasty meal. So if you want to throw together a quick and fresh tasty meal just like me, go to hellofresh.com forward slash millionaire10 and use code millionaire10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to hellofresh.com forward slash millionaire10 and use code millionaire10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, but I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What, what's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money and, you know, I could do the math. So yeah, your friends would come over to your house because you had food. Why did you have food versus them? Probably luck and fortune. My mom was working at a company that was, she got in there pretty early in the early 80s, I think. She basically was just able to keep her job because, you know, the boss of the company is a very smart guy, kind of a hustler. I wouldn't be surprised if he's one of like the oligarchs at this point in Russia, <laughs> at least maybe one of some of the minor ones. But basically because the company did well, you know, my mom always had a job and she supported a family of five. I was growing up with my grandma, my uncle and my grandpa, and my mom was definitely the, uh, you know, the breadwinner there. What happened with your dad? Never met the guy. <laughs> my mom left him when I was a baby. Okay. So did you ever want to connect with him? Not really. I don't know the guy, so no. Yeah, no, it's understood. What else stands out from, I guess, you growing up in Russia before coming over here? The lack of organization. 
So here's a striking example that I can provide. I was terrified as a little kid of getting stuck in elevators because A, they were in terrible shape. They were like these older, you know, Soviet era elevators from like 60s and 70s. And the problem is that public services like firemen, policemen, and even just regular repairmen come fix like electrical problems. It could take you days to get there. And if you got stuck in an elevator, I mean, there was no way to guarantee that somebody would come get you quickly. In fact, I think on average, you probably waited anywhere between two to four hours before somebody came out. And it wasn't unheard of for people to literally kind of spend half of a day stuck in an elevator before somebody came out and helped them. So that's one of those like striking. I distinctly remember being very kind of afraid of taking an elevator ride to the point where, you know, we lived on the fourth floor and I preferred to take the stairs, which in of itself was always an adventure because you never knew when there would be like a homeless or a drunk person kind of sleeping there, or if there would be like local neighborhood hooligans waiting to kind of take your lunch money, so to speak. Not that I had any, but they might just beat you up just for the fun of it. So there's a lot of fun times we're had. Where in Russia were you? In Moscow. Luckily, I was in the central city. That, that had its pros and cons as well. Is everything owned by the government at that point in time? Or is like, do you still have some individual businesses? Because again, this is so, such a foreign concept to me of understanding why people are working if they had to because of the government or how you could get ahead. I'm just curious if you have any more insight onto that. Yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, things became very privatized. That's where a lot of the kind of the proverbial land grabs happened. So after, as USSR was collapsing, basically all of these were essentially crime criminals, right? Let's call them that. So kind of like enterprise grade criminals, they came in and they really kind of took everything over, right? So that's why you have the oligarchs these days. It's really from the 90s when they, you know, came into power. And so, no, there was no government structure, so to speak. Everything was privatized by the time that I was coming of age. Really, most of those businesses were privately owned, but essentially backed, like, how does the government make its money, right? Everything was essentially kind of like based on bribes, right? So you had to pay off the cops, you had to pay uh, firemen for protection of your business as well. I mean, it's uh, crazy times. Do you have any more connections still to Russia or have any friends or anything like that over there still? I actually recently, in the last 10 years, I reconnected with a few people, a few of my classmates. Some of them are really cool people, actually. One of my buddies that I had a really strong connection with, and we've seen each other many times over the last uh, decade or so, he's actually, uh, he was one of the first people, one of the first developers that worked on Mail.ru which is basically kind of like the Google or the Yahoo of Russia. You know, I keep touch with a few of those people. I think it's very interesting to hear their side of the story, right? We have so much propaganda on both sides that like, it's just interesting to kind of swap stories every now and then. Yeah. I'm just curious before we kind of move on with your story and you coming over to America, have they said how anything's changed or I'm just curious if you know anything about that too? Sure. I think that it has changed quite a bit. You know, the story was that Russia would typically lag by about five to seven years. So whatever we had in America that was popular or whatever technological advancements that we had, you know, Russia would basically get it in five to seven years from that point on. But I think that largely they've caught up. And I see so many different things on Instagram from my Russian friends and my in-laws, my relatives who live in Russia, where it's not that drastically different from what we experience here in America. So I think that they've, in many ways, they've caught up, you know, technologically and lifestyle wise. It's very interesting to see them having the same kind of accommodations and the same luxuries that you would expect from a first world country. And so in many ways, one of the reasons why I have like very little interest of actually visiting Russia is because there is no place there for me, but also because a lot of it is the stuff that I have here, right? Like we, you know, all the accommodations, all the fast food, all the delicious food. I mean, they have pretty much everything there. If we fast forward, you said you were 13 when you came to America. So what was the transition like? And can you tell us why your mom wanted to get you out and how that was? 
It was actually my grandfather who wanted to get us out. He had family living out here in Los Angeles who, you know, they were professional musicians. So they basically, so his sister and her husband, they're both professional musicians. So the sister, she worked at uh, Bayola. The husband actually worked until very recently at uh, LA Philharmonic. When my grandfather visited them here, he basically said, wow, life is amazing here. We got to move here. Problem was that what he didn't realize is that his sister and her husband were very well off. So the lifestyle was kind of atypical from what the average American experiences. Well, with that real quick, so were they really successful? The musicians you're saying were had a lot of money? Yes. I mean, they were successful in their own right. So they made a very good living, right? I mean, six-figure income during the 80s. So, I mean, you can imagine that. Yeah. And that's surprising being a musician too, right? Yeah. They were very good musicians. Like, I mean, you're talking about essentially cream of the crop, you know, like playing for the LA Philharmonic. I mean, you have to be really good. <laughs> Dude, I've got no idea what that is or nearly, you know, maybe the people in LA know what that is. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> how do you spell it? You know, like usually I can Google this shit. I don't know what that is. <laughs> they basically play classical music, right? At the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, you say right, but I don't know. I have no idea what type of music it is or anything like that. <laughs> Sorry for assuming that, I guess. You know, they played classical music at the Hollywood Bowl, which is a world-famous venue, and Biola University. So, yeah, I mean, they're both very prestigious places of employment. Yeah, the Hollywood Bowl, B-O-W-L, like a bowl game. Okay, so I see what, exactly what you're talking about. That's where they played in the 80s, and you have to be really good, you're saying, to be able to... Because, again, I just imagined if they were musicians that they weren't making much money, because that seems like most musicians... Yeah, they were basically uh, professional musicians. So like really the cream of the crop. He was a violinist and uh, she played piano. Were they at Russia before your grandpa went over there to see them? Yeah, they actually migrated. They were immigrants. They came over in the 70s, I think. They came here because they were Jewish. The USSR wasn't terribly fond of Jews. And so when they came here, they were basically escaping religious persecution. And so when did your granddad visit them? And my grandpa visited them in the 80s. So I believe in the mid to late 80s. I think he had a couple of visits where they basically sat down and said, look, you got to get over here, man. Like, you know, Russia, nothing as good as coming out of that collapse of USSR. I mean, soon things are going to get far worse. So you need to get over here. And that took, I think, either three or four years, the entire process. And again, you know, a lot of bribes, a lot of greasing the wheels, and really a lot of secrecy. I mean, this the kind of the whole saga of being an immigrant from USSR to America could literally be like one of those lifetime movies, one of those dramas where things are kind of on the edge constantly. Right. So were you on the edge or did they not tell you any of that stuff till you got over to America? <laughs> they actually did try to keep it secret from me because kids talk, you know, kids are dumb. And, you know, unfortunately, I was a smart kid, so I figured everything out pretty quickly. <laughs> and I did end up spilling the beans, which was actually very dangerous. It was not unheard of for people to find out that somebody was moving or leaving, like migrating to America. And before they could do so, essentially, you know, to come and to come in with extortion. So kidnappings or just straight up extortion, threat of violence, etc. I mean, that was very common those days. And so your grandpa goes over there in the, the 80s and then takes a couple of years for him to get you and your mom and everybody else over to California as well? Yep. So eventually we moved in November of 1994. We end up moving to Los Angeles, California. We move into our first apartment in Hollywood, and it is a gigantic culture shock. <laughs> to make a long story short, like I said, the reason why it was such a culture shock is because the move, the, you know, the way that we saw life in America through Hollywood is not how it really is, right? So not everybody lives in a nice, big, clean home, right? We moved into a, you know, a five-person family. 
So it was me, my mom, my uncle, my grandma, and my grandpa in a two-bedroom apartment with a St. Bernard that we brought over. So we had a dog, a large dog, like she was probably like 90 pounds and in a two-bedroom apartment. My expectation as a kid, you know, I'm like, well, in America, everybody lives with palm trees and they've got a big old house and everything is wonderful, right? Everything is easy. There's tons of money floating around. You know, I can't wait to move. And then all of a sudden we land in Hollywood, which at the time was not a prime destination by any means. It was pretty dirty. <laughs> and I ended up going to a public school, middle school, where essentially there was, this is a middle school, keep that in mind, not, not even a high school. There were shootings and stabbings. So this is Bancroft Middle School. So you have kids dunking on the playground, you know, playing basketball and actually dunking in eighth grade. Was that you? Were you the one doing the dunking? Uh, no, I was the one getting his head dunked into water. <laughs> All jokes aside, I mean, no, it was just such a culture shock. You know, you expect one thing and we essentially got kind of the exact opposite, right? It took me years. In fact, it wasn't until after high school that I really started to understand kind of the American way of life, kind of like the school system, you know, what matters, what doesn't. And really, you know, trial by fire in many ways. And I, I think that those formative years of mine probably played a big role in terms of how I grew up as a professional. Is it your great aunt and your great uncle, or I'm not, not sure if that's the name of them, or at least your grandpa's brother and sister, they didn't want to help you all out, hook you up? Not financially. Even a place to, you know, I don't know if they could help. I'm, I'm not saying they need to give you payments every month or anything like that, but it sounds like they didn't live anywhere near Bancroft Middle School. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that they were unwilling to help. It's just that they didn't really know how to. Basically, once we got here, kind of on our own, I mean, I'm sure they did help in some ways, but again, their advice was probably really outdated. I mean, they moved in the 70s. We moved in, in the middle of 90s. So 20 years, it's a big difference. You know, you forget a lot of those things and the, all those processes change, right? So my mom really had to figure out everything really quickly and really on her own. I don't remember there being much help from our extended family. Did you know English? I came here with a vocabulary of 300 words. <laughs> yes. So that probably was hard in middle school too to make friends in. Yeah, well, I mean, in middle school, one of the blessings of being in a school in a poor neighborhood was that there were a lot of kids like you. So there was actually an entire grade of Russian immigrant kids who basically just spoke Russian, which, by the way, is not conducive to learning English at <laughs> right. all. Right, yeah. They, they spoke worse Russian than I spoke, but they also didn't speak good English. So it was very kind of like an unfortunate situation. Luckily, soon after we moved, my mom said, we can't keep on living here. And she made the decision to basically move us to Beverly Hills, which I, to this day, don't really know how she pulled off, to be completely honest with you. But I spent only half a year in that Bancroft Middle School. And after that, we moved to Beverly Hills. And I went to the Beverly Hills Unified School District, which is nine-day difference. I mean, it's not privileged like rich kids, but it's much nicer. Let's just put it that way. The story here is interesting. I mean, this makes everyone appreciate, hopefully, if you've been born and raised in America, you're just 13 at this point and all the stuff you have to go through, right? So building a business probably seems a little bit easier comparatively. In some ways, sure. I think that when you go through that much adversity and as an adult, you kind of, in retrospect, you sit down and think about it. You think about like, okay, the problems of today, they're nowhere near as significant as the things that I've gone through. That's really the mentality I even try to raise my kids with, you know, where it's like, look, these little things day to day, they're not big problems. Like we think of these things like, oh, God, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? But ultimately, so little matters so much, right? I mean, there are very few things that really matter at the end of the day. Uh, and by focusing on that, I mean, your personal and your professional growth will, I think, will skyrocket if you're able to take that mindset. And so virtually fast forward to in your story here. I think that after high school is probably where it gets starts to become interesting. I would say that after graduating high school. Yeah, what year did you graduate? That was 2001. 
after that, I knew that I technically should go to school, but I also got this uh, crazy wild idea that I wanted to play guitar because I was really into heavy metal music. And my interest in music kind of outweighed the interest in college. So I actually ended up dropping out of college in favor of playing guitar in a band because that's really what I wanted to do, right? I know, sounds crazy, whatever, but that's what people do. But it is relevant to the story in the sense that I actually, what I had to go through in between the ages of 18 through 21 was far more conducive to business growth and to professional growth than what most kids get out of their first three to four years of college. And so as a band member, I was essentially a driving force, right? So I basically wrote the songs. I recruited my band members. I booked gigs. I had to network with the local bands to get more exposure, to get more gigs. And I had to work through all of that, right? So, so you kind of have to support your habit, right? And your hobby. That was a great time, right? I mean, there was a lot of learning. I could sit here and talk about those three and a half years of doing music all day. But ultimately, I think to make it relevant to this interview, I had to learn a lot of things that simply you can only learn by doing on the street, right? If you are the boots on the ground, you're doing things that are that actually translate directly into being really good at business, right? Or at least not really good at it, but at least teaching you important lessons that apply to business. So again, for example, like networking, right? And being able to talk to people and finding people. It's like, you want to book a gig? Well, how do you do that? Well, I have no idea. So figure it out. If you really want to play, if you want to throw a show, you better start figuring out who does the booking for Whiskey A Go-Go, for the Roxy, for the Viper Room. So all of that goes into your ability to kind of conduct business as well, right? So you want to grow your business? Well, you better get comfortable talking to people, right? Most businesses at first have no business, so to speak, of. So you have to go out and sell your product. You have to pitch your services. You have to know how to source prospects and you have to be very comfortable talking to them. And so that's something that went a long way to helping me establish that core. I didn't know that at the time. To me at the time, it was just an interesting thing to do. But looking back at it, essentially that laid the groundwork for kind of business development and really for conducting business in an efficient manner. And it makes sense. That's what I was going to actually wrote down as you were talking. I'm like, you probably learned how to figure it out. And you literally said that like seconds after that, because it's again, there's no playbook. Like almost in school, you've got to, they tell you what to do, right? And what you have to do to pass. But if you're doing the band stuff, it's not like you had a template. It sounded like on how to book gigs and figure out who to talk to. But you realize, hey, no one else is going to figure it out for me. If I'm in charge of the band, I've got to figure it out. So how long did you play the guitar for? So I, I tried to do the band thing for about three and a half years. After that, I decided that I was getting older, obviously, you know, realizing that music wasn't going to happen. And I was okay with it, you know, because I like I got what I needed out of it. You know, like I got it out of my system. I mean, three and a half years sounds like a long time. It's a significant price to pay, right? Three and a half years of your youth. But at the same time, the experiences, the things that I got out of it were terrific, you know, and they were very fulfilling to my soul, so to speak. I also came to the realization that my priorities were changing and I started to think more about my long-term outlook. And I said, wow, I want a family. You know, I, I knew that before I even met my wife, before I had my kids, I knew I wanted a family with children. And I said, well, in order for me to have them, I have to be responsible. I have to be able to afford them, which means that I have to have a good job, which means I got to go back to school. And there I was going back, you know, to square one, basically with school, I went back, but this time, instead of flunking all of my grades and in favor of playing guitar and having fun, I actually really committed to it. And I really, basically, I was on Dean's list the entire time since I went back, which means that I maintained a really high GPA. I think it was something like 3.8, maybe even 4.0. I don't remember for sure, but I basically stayed on Dean's list and did really well in school because I became professional, you know, and that was a significant turning point. And then when did you graduate and what did you do from there? 
So I graduated from a commuter school here in uh, Los Angeles from、uh, CSUN, Cal State University of Northridge, Go Matadors. We, when I say we, really it's me. I made the decision basically that marketing was something I was really interested in. At the same time, my in 2008 the economy collapsed, right? So my parents, well, my mom and her partner at the time, they were running a limousine business, a luxury transportation business, and they had to make up the revenue somehow. They're older people, right? I mean, at the time they're not that old, but they weren't familiar with the digital world, and I was actually starting to get really curious about how do people find business online? You know, how do you develop business online? And I got involved in PPC. So I basically offered to my family. I said, "Look, why don't I run some kind of a basic pay-per-click advertising locally, and let's see what happens with it, right?" And so that introduced me to the world of paid search marketing and paid search advertising. Out of that, I started to develop a very strong interest in the organic channel as well. Those are the roots of my kind of interest in SEO and content marketing. And what year was this? This was 2009, 2010. Okay, now how old were you? That would make me 27 at the time, 26, 27. Because I knew again, it was like three and a half years you did the band thing, so I just want to make sure we are all on the same page of your age and what year we are in. Yeah, yeah. So twenty ten, you're twenty seven years old, and you're trying to help your mom with her limousine business. Yep. And out of that, I realized that look at the core of it, I know what I'm interested in, which is advertising and marketing. Initially, I was really interested in going into kind of traditional agencies, so kind of like your Deutsches, you know. Of the world, but then I realized that I'm actually far more interested in the digital and the online world. I thought it was it had a little bit more of a hustle behind it. You know, every dollar counted, right? As a small business, you can't waste a two thousand dollar marketing budget every month. Whereas with the traditional media agencies, they basically get like ten million dollar budget, and they're like, "Hey, here, go spend it. Just try to show us some numbers that this kind of work, that our brand awareness went up, or how many impressions you guys got on on the social media platform." So it was more meaningful to me, right? Like my results of my work online with PPC and with SEO. Were a lot more measurable, and it just simply was far more satisfactory. It lacks the glamour of of working in a madman type agency, but at the same time, it was just much more fulfilling on an everyday basis. Well, did your first project? Because it sounded like it was your first project with helping your mom. Did that work out? Yeah, I mean, the business actually survived that crash. It, just to provide some background, basically, what they did is they realized that there was a market for luxury van transportation. So at the time, there wasn't a lot of it, and Mercedes-Benz had these wonderful 16-passenger vans, basically that were they were just a little bit more expensive to book than like Ford van or something like that, but they were a lot more comfortable and a lot nicer. So a lot of band transportation, a lot of athletes, a lot of、uh, business people, a lot of like、uh, Chinese businessmen, they would just send over like entire teams, right? So you'd have to transport them from LAX to like a nearby hotel or whatever. So that's how the business survived. But that channel isn't really open; it's not discovered. Until we run that PPC, until we start to realize that, like, hey, there's this demand for this. And did you learn that PPC? And again, that's pay per click. In case anyone's wondering, but did you learn that just from going on YouTube? Because I imagine that they weren't teaching you that in school. Actually, at the time, YouTube wasn't very helpful. It's not the same YouTube as it is today. There weren't as many tutorials. I actually read a lot, but I would say about. Thirty to forty of it was reading, trying to pick up information from kind of like the existing PPC gurus, so to speak. But a lot more creativity and ingenuity goes into PPC than what you can learn online for free. You really have to kind of get your hands dirty, right? Roll up your sleeves and really get in there through testing. You know, testing and、uh, seeing how everything works. That's the number one driver for kind of proving the results. You know, I'm still gonna get paid, but I realize that if I make a twenty or thirty thousand dollar sale, I might only get fifteen thousand. 
me. I wish I had taught. Wow, if I had talked to you a year ago, because part of the reason I get suckered into salarying these people, they're like, I have to pay my bills, and I wish I had known about that. I, I can't believe no one's like ever said that to me because like that's how I should be structuring everything. So that's awesome. That's exactly what I should have been doing. So yeah, I appreciate you、uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in instead of just asking like the typical questions. Like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, why do you want to become a Patreon? I just yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people. The more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it, and such an amount that people—it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would like check in once a month, and still, you know, it's adding value.、But、I think just kind of like say, hey, guys, it's only like you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> But yeah, that was just your mom's business at first, because again, you're 2010 to 27 years old. Did you have any other business coming out, or I mean, were you trying to be part of another company? Because I imagine you're probably doing it for free for her. Absolutely no. I mean, at the time, that was call it a hobby slash side project that was much more important than a hobby. But I was actually just starting my career, right? So out of school, I basically I started working as a digital marketing coordinator at a place called Hair and Compounds here in Van Nuys. They basically did wholesale hair extensions. Hi Isaac, if you ever listen to this, hi Elizabeth. I miss you guys. Well, you're going to send them this interview, aren't you? I actually probably will because I'll tell them that you know I mentioned them. I'll probably send this to everybody that I mention here. Yeah. Oh, and everybody else, right? Because my guests, I love it when they promote it. So you're going to promote this, right? Of course. I mean, no doubt about it.、We're、making sure. So I got you on record here. Yeah, I got myself on record here too. <laughs> so I basically started working my way up, and pretty aggressively. I mean, I, I outgrew my positions really quickly. Again, probably because the positions were never enough, right? So whatever, I was basically like a sponge, just trying to like. Taking as much information as possible, I just kept basically moving from one company to another, and eventually I landed at an agency that was kind of a startup on its own. They were such a fun collection of people. The people who worked there, you know, that they're some of my fondest professional memories come from my early days at that agency. Well, what was the name? The name was Coalition Technologies. They're still around. They've grown to be one of the largest digital marketing agencies in the world. When I joined them, they actually had just started to really expand, and I was able to work my way up aggressively because they had a very flat company structure. So I could basically go in and pitch my ideas and talk to to the decision makers, to the company owner, very easily. You know, my competence was kind of quickly recognized, and so I moved up my way pretty aggressively all the way to become the manager of the、uh, SEO and PPC operations at the company. At the same time, by refining kind of the account management processes and the SEO processes, I'd like to believe that I played an instrumental role in helping the company grow because we basically grew over the time from when I started to when I actually left the company. I believe when I joined, it was about thirty people, maybe thirty-two, something like that, to when I left, which was over one hundred and forty employees. And so, when did you leave? That was in two thousand sixteen. And what type of money were you making at that point in time? Oh man, agency money. Let's just say that it's never good enough. Oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, <laughs> are you making a hundred thousand a year? Oh no! Oh God, no! Not even close. Oh wow. Okay, I thought you would based on like the growth and everything. <laughs> so I guess agency money is not good money. You know, if you want to keep a good employee, you better reward them well. <laughs> 
Right. So yeah. So now we know why you left. <laughs> no, I mean that's not all. I, I'm not going to say that. Actually, to be completely honest, the main reason why I left was because I already had children at the time. I had two kids at the time, and I started going to bed and thinking to myself, you know, I want my kids to grow up to be better versions of myself. And how can I tell them to go out and be better versions of myself if and really grow professionally and as people if I don't show them and I don't lead them by example, right? And one of the ways that I felt that I could accomplish that is by striking out on my own, starting my own company and showing them that it can be done, that they can can be their own bosses, that they can run their own ethical, legitimate businesses that are profitable. And to this day, I mean, really, that remains my personal challenge to myself. And that's what really fuels and motivates me is to show them that, hey, you can be an amazing person, an amazing professional and make good money at the same time. Oh, no, I mean, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Because like, if you left there, it was 2016. So I guess you're about 33 years old. That's when you're at your inflection point. And again, it's not always one thing. And sometimes the company can still be good. But like you were saying, if you're not paying enough at the end of the day, you have to you need more money if you want more money to help raise your children. I mean, that's the reason, again, it's not the sole reason, but it seems like a primary reason why you left. Yeah. I mean, it's the financial incentive is always there, of course. Certainly, I would recommend to anybody who thinks that they're worth more to always explore their options, right? I mean, even to my own employees, I would recommend that to say like, look, if you think you can make better money somewhere while being comfortable in the position that you are in, then I encourage you to seek that out. And I know that might sound crazy, but I do like to think that that's also one of the reasons why my employees, they love working with me and working on doing the work that we do together. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, money is important, especially if you want a family, you want to provide for it. You know, you're always going to look for ways to make more money. And I understand that. And so from there, did you start Avidon Marketing Group or what happened from there? No, I had no intention of starting an agency at all. I was actually a little bit burnt out from my work at Coalition. I was working hard. I was really committed to the job and to the company, but every agency burns you out no matter what. I mean, agency life is crazy. It's hectic, very fast paced. And there's a lot of demand from clients, from there's internal demand, external demand, and pressure. So when I left, I actually left to explore starting my own business, but not service-based business. I actually wanted to launch a product. And at the time, I had two separate things that I could pursue. So the first one was basically launching a brand of something that basically didn't exist. I still think it's an opportunity. I think that the right person can probably make it happen and make a really good brand out of it. But one of my buddies, he was really into succulents. If you're not familiar with what a succulent is, it's like this little desk plant, basically, that you can put on your desk and it's kind of decorative. It's really cute. It can really brighten up a room, just a few of them. And there are so many different ways to like arrange them and to make your living space or your working space look really nice. So what we wanted to do was essentially a boxed service, right? Like, so like a, we wanted to be able to, for people to be able to gift these succulents as a kit, right? So let's say that it's Christmas time, you know, and Austin doesn't know what to get his mother. And he's like, oh my God, oh, I know. Igor Avedon's brand of succulent kit delivery for only 30 bucks, I can send her these beautiful succulents and she can put them up on her sill and they will windowsill and they will always remind her of me, right? So that was the first idea. And then the second idea was actually, I was approached to become a minority partner at a Los Angeles dispensary, which at the time was really starting to boom. I mean, that was, uh, you know, the LA cannabis market was really opening up. And that was another interesting avenue because I basically had to sweat equity in it. I didn't put anything in because I had very little capital to offer, but by really working the cannabis space kind of within the industry, that was extremely valuable. So both of those things I started pursuing out of the gate after I left the agency. And as a third, very distant thing, basically I was still very good at SEO. And so what happened is, again, by through just sheer word of mouth, 
I basically had a couple of consulting clients that I was consulting them on their growth organically. And I was basically, I started kind of writing out processes essentially to help them grow through organic search and through just digital marketing in general. As these three things were happening all simultaneously, here I am, you know, I'm married. I have two children to uh, raise. And at the time it was only two, now it's three. I have this responsibility. And so I'm kind of, I'm working even more than usual, but now it's all for myself, right? It's all for me and my family. And that, again, that provides that kind of internal motivation to keep on going. Dispensary thing didn't work out in the end. The partners who were the majority partners were basically, let's say that they didn't really understand how to run a business. And because I had little to no true partnership equity, I basically just chose to pull out and just say, look, you guys, you guys can have this because I don't think this is going anywhere because you guys are making all the wrong kind of moves. And unfortunately, the second one's thing didn't work out. The project that I started was my partner was the essentially the product manager. He was the person who knew the product. I was just going to be the operations and the marketing behind it. But he kind of pulled out different mindsets, different approaches to, to our strategy and different levels of comfort with, you know, how much we need to invest into it, how serious we need to get about that business. And so both of those kind of fell out, right? So, and that, that happened over the first 12 months. Luckily, at the same time, the consulting just kind of took off on its own. So from those first couple of clients, I got other referrals because I was able to get very good results with very minimal input. I basically, suddenly I had a consultancy on my hands. In 2018, I incorporated Avidon Marketing Group. I believe it was January or February. But in reality, that consulting business had been running starting from probably early 2017. So basically, when you were between the three different businesses that you're working on, it took you about a year to the other two kind of fizzle out. And then you're like, hey, I'm going to go back to keep doing what I'm doing. You've been doing it on the side, but now you can put all your energy and effort into it. Correct. Exactly. I really don't like to swim against the current, right? I do like to go with the flow. And it just seemed that the entire universe was just pointing me towards this like agency model, right? At first, I was just an expert, a consultant on my own. But as clients kept coming, people kept knocking on my door. I was just honest with them. You know, I told them like, look, here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. Here's what I can consult you on. Here are the things that, you know, I really excel at. And the early clients really liked hearing it. And like I said, that it just became, it was so organic and so natural that I'm like, I'm not going to fight this. I'm just going to go with this and see what, where it takes me. How much were you working at that point in time once you were putting all your energy and time into being a consultant? Not counting the other ventures. This was just, you're asking about the consultancy? Yeah, because I don't care about the other ones now. Uh, just like when you went full time in your consulting. I don't really know. I would probably say about- Were you working 40 hours or were you working weekends? Like what was your work life balance? Not a great work-life balance. I've gotten used to working roughly about 60 hours a week, which meant that I basically worked on the weekends too, every single weekend. It could have been more than that, but I would say probably on average about 60 hour weeks. Was that straining at all? I guess it's exciting you're doing your own thing, but I guess you're finally making money with it too, because the other two ventures, you know, spending a lot of time on at some point and those didn't work out. Yeah. The financial aspect of it, the hours that I was putting into it, they were good. Right. And again, when you're just starting out and you're in this, like, you're kind of like, you've got this adrenaline rush still, you don't really notice how hard or how much you're working necessarily. But eventually it was crystal clear that I needed to just hire, right? I needed to hire talent to allow me to scale this up a little bit, right? And so I, I didn't want to be stuck at like three, four, five clients at a time. I wanted to be able to meaningfully service, you know, 10, 12, 15 clients. And so, you know, I made some good hires early on, some key personnel, people that I knew either from previously working with them or just by their reputation through other friends who have worked with them. 
So I knew that they were very good and, you know, trustworthy individuals. And so I brought them on board and really it shaved off the necessity from production work for me and moved me much more into the kind of the overall strategic capacity, which is really where I excel. I mean, ultimately every boss should head of strategy, not head of production. Yeah. Cause you were doing all the production the first year, would you say, till you finally made your first hire? Yeah, I used contractors to help me out, but again, there's only so much help you can get from a contractor. Uh, you have to have somebody who is there full-time really working on the same goals and on the same campaigns as you constantly, because you have to know your partner brands, you have to know them intimately, and you can't teach contractors that. How much money were you actually making that first year of doing, again, I know you weren't quote-unquote incorporated yet, but let's just pretend you are. How much money did you actually make that first year with Evron Marketing? Man, I want to say... 2017, probably less than six figures, under six figures. In 2018, once I incorporated, once I brought personnel on board, took me well into six figures. So, you know, over a 12 month period after incorporating, I probably doubled the profit margins. So I, I want to say maybe even more. Was your take home, like, what would that be like then at that point? Uh, probably close to 200 in 2018. Okay. Well, for the whole business or for you personally? For the whole business. That's revenue. And most of it's profit, right? Not most of it. You know, once I started paying employees, once I started having more structure in place, payroll certainly grew. But I did that in a manner that is with business metrics in mind, right? So I knew that there was no way. I would rather work more than ever be in the red, right? So I basically did it with business metrics in mind. Yeah. No, I think a lot of service-based businesses do too. Like you have to think that way. If you're going in a red on a service-based business, then there's an issue, right? When you're kind of starting off. So, I mean, I was just trying to get to like whether you were making more money personally after a year into your business than you were with the Coalition Technologies, the company you had left. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my personal take home was at least 50% more. Yeah. Well, that's exciting then, right? Oh, absolutely. Considering how organically things happen, the I never even imagined it, even in my wildest dreams. I always told myself, look, if I can live comfortably with my, you know, while doing my business, I'll be happy, right? As long as I'm my own boss and I can provide for my family, I'm happy. This has definitely exceeded all of those expectations or cleared that hurdle, right? It's not really, the financial incentive of it is not really the important aspect of it. You know, it's nice to have, it's great to have. I, you know, I'm super grateful for it. But again, I think the thing that makes it work is that I don't focus on the money as much as I focus on the brand, our company brand, and on help making sure that our clients are happy. Your first full year of you doing it was 2017 and 2018 is kind of when you made your first hire. So we'll just say that's kind of year two, right? Is that what it sounds like or no? Yeah. I mean, officially, officially year one was 2018, but in reality, that was probably year two. I like reality versus non-reality, if you will. <laughs> so, cause it helps anyone starting off. Cause this is what I talked about in the beginning, since you're still kind of in the beginning stages, if there's any hiccups or any suggestions you had, cause I could see a lot of service-based businesses taking your route where they work by themselves their first year, then they're getting burned out. They need more people, right? And then it's year two, you decided it was time for you to hire somebody. Were you working from home or like, just tell us how that went. If you have any things that you would have done differently or any suggestions for anyone in year two. Yeah. Look, you got to hire smart, right? You have to understand, you have to objectively sit down and assess kind of where is your time going and what is the biggest time suck? And then out of that list, you have to basically say like, okay, well, how much of this do I really have to do? And, and you know, how much of this could be covered by an additional team member, right? So if I hire somebody for, you know, $40,000 a year or $50,000 a year, how much more of this work can they take on to free up my time? Again, the, the business owner's job, it's not production, right? It shouldn't be. It should be really focused on kind of developing and growing the business and further kind of solidifying the brand, right? With, you know, making sure 
sure that people know about you, making sure that people are kind of aware of your services and aware of your quality. That's when you make your first hire, you can't be blind. I'll give myself credit where credit is due. And that's, I attempt to hire very smart. I don't waste my money. I don't hire really expensive personnel because I don't need expensive personnel until I need expensive personnel, right? So until I need like somebody who is on my level of like decision-making, you know, or maybe they're truly amazing and on my level of having SEO strategy capabilities, then at that point I will pay that person. But until it's necessary, don't do it. Save up put together a war chest, I'll work hard and get some kind of that fallback plan, right? And once that piggy bank is full, that's when you know that you can really expand and branch out and make a good hire. Were you working from home at this point? Technically, yes, but I also got an office to meet with clients. This was a very small office space. I mean, I didn't need a lot, but I was actually subleasing from one of our clients. It worked out really well. As long as you do good work for the client. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm still very good friends with the, the company owner. There's no issue there. But again, the reason why I didn't opt for a full-on office was because I didn't need one. I didn't have a team large enough, you know, that we needed a large office space or a full-time office space even. I just needed a place where I could really go and either meet clients or I can, or prospective clients, or I could go and just have like, uh, quote unquote, me professional time, right? So I don't have to deal with kids playing around me. I can just go in and focus on work in that office space. So we made it through year two. Oh, we got two more years here. Is there anything else in closing year two as far as it seems like you made one hire and things were going the right way? It wasn't just one hire, it was actually a couple of hires. And then at that time, I was already laying the groundwork for kind of scaling it up meaningfully. Like, how did you have the confidence to have a couple of hires then? Like, how many clients did you have and were you confident that they were going to keep staying with you? Because I don't know how much money you had saved up to doing that. This is, again, an important part of your story because you're so new to it. What made you comfortable so other people could maybe judge their sales if, that, if it's time to hire multiple people? I mean, you have to be able to sustain that, right? When I make a hire, I, my mindset is that that person is going to be working for me for the rest of their life, right? That's not the case. But the point being is that I want to be able to comfortably assume that I will have enough revenue to pay them. So one of the concessions that I had to make is that I, I had to say, okay, well, if I ever need to, I'll pay myself less, right? So that was always something that was in the back of my mind. My employees will always be paid first, and then I will be paid. In order to make the numbers work, I mean, you just sit down, you do due diligence on the business end, right? You look at your revenue, you kind of try to predict what your revenue is going to be in the future. I mean, look, there are some like, you know, formulas that an accountant or a CPA can do for you or a business manager can do for you. But at the end of the day, you got to know your business. You got to know your clients. You have to be able to project, kind of take an intelligent stab at it, right? To like, okay, well, I think that we're, I'm going to be able to keep, you know, 80 or 90% of my revenue over the next six months. By that time, I basically have to be able to replace whatever revenue I lose with new work, right? It was 2018. Do you want to talk about 2019 and 2020 as we get off here? 2019 made more hires, basically. Again, it's just about sustaining, making sure that I can maintain the quality. And this is the thing that business is so dynamic. It's funny, but even if you grow only about 20 to 25% year over year, that strain can be tremendous, especially when you have a business model like mine, where I talk directly to the clients all of our clients, uh, I'm their uh, main uh, primary point of contact. And so that starts to bring into you know the picture kind of different types of questions and different types of challenges. And so even though I can theoretically expand my production team quite easily, that starts to walk me away from the business model that I had established, which is very much boutique in, its, uh, in terms of how we function. And this is really the kind of through 2019 and 2020, this is probably the biggest challenge right now is figuring out, okay, do I want to maintain this growth, right? 
do I really want to keep on growing the business while maintaining the same model? Or do I have to pivot and essentially switch up the model, which would definitely require some very intelligent business decisions. And to be honest with you, I'm still kind of mulling through our options here on how to handle that. But at the same time, there's always that question. It's like, well, is my agency something that I want to keep on doing over the next five to 10 years? Or is my ultimate goal to move on to something that is more of a proprietary brand or a different kind of business that basically leverages my team's expertise? I think that that's where we are right now. I'm basically trying to figure out right now, what is the best thing to do for me and my team? That's an open-ended question. So I think everyone, even the other people that I've interviewed on this podcast, they won't necessarily even say that openly, right? So I appreciate you saying that because we never know. Like everyone, probably every six months, I think everyone has should kind of question what they're doing, why they're doing it, if they're doing it the right way, you know, pricing or whatever it is. So been the hardest thing business-wise for you over this whole new venture of yours? The hardest thing has probably been honestly kind of holding myself back from growing more, from growing the company more, because I am very much married to the actual business model. I think it's much more meaningful this way. I think that relinquishing that control, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, these great entrepreneurs, if you listen to their podcasts and a lot of the stories that, you know, that you've probably featured, you'll hear a lot of them say, look, you got to let go, right? You just got to trust your team members, you know, to do a good job for you. And you got to get involved on the side of things where they can't help you, right? So with business development and sales, et cetera, that's definitely hard. I am very much accustomed to account management, to production work. I am very, I'm happy to do it. And it's one of the things that kind of satisfies my professional sense of well being, right? And kind of fulfillment. But at the same time, I realize that that's probably not the best way to handle business growth, really. Again, one of the avenues could be that we simply take things in-house and we just start in-house brands, right? And I think that that by eliminating the client-vendor relationship where we become our own clients, I think that that could mean a way for me and my team to grow our financial income significantly without relinquishing the things that we really like. That's another avenue that's, again, I think that five years down the line, that's probably closer to what I'd like to well, what's been the hardest thing personally? Personally, I've got a nine and an eight-year-old and I've got a toddler who's going to be two in a few months here. Uh, and the hardest thing is not being able to spend as much time with them. And that's for sure, by far and away. I try to maintain a healthy kind of work-life balance, but I work anywhere between 60 to 80 hours a week. That's a lot. I don't really have vacations. I, in fact, I don't remember the last time I took a vacation. I rarely take weekends off. You know, I think that in 2020 and then in 2019, I probably took all of four days, full days off. I think that that was, that's probably maybe even less or maybe fewer days. I'm not sure. So that's the hardest part. I'm very family oriented. I absolutely love my kids. I love spending time with them. And at the end of the day, that, why am I even doing this? You know, I'm trying to do it for them. And so not being able to spend as much time with them and really to mentor them and like to help them out as they start to go through school, just to play with them, really, you know, that, that's the toughest thing. Have you ever had like talks of, I don't know, with your partner about not spending enough time with them? My wife is stay at home. She's been at home for a few years now. I don't remember exactly how long, but I want to assume from at least 2018. That's kind of her job now. You know, three kids is a lot. It's tough. I mean, it's a full-time job on its own. But overall, there, I don't know how much there is to discuss, really. It's not like it's her fault. <laughs> it's kind of like it comes with the territory, I think. You know, when you're the sole person bringing in the income, you know, and when you're responsible, not just for our family, but really for the families of my, for our team members, right? The people that, whose salaries I pay, I'm responsible for their well-being and livelihood too. So it's beyond just my family. You know, I have, there are responsibilities that go extend beyond that and they're substantial. That's the one thing that probably team members and employees probably don't think a lot about, but I certainly do. 
And so I guess, how do you balance whether you should work more or hang out with your family? I guess you have to be okay with that sacrifice. I think that for me mentally, you know, knowing that I can provide a financial stability for my family is extremely important. And again, if you go back to our conversation from my background, right, from where I came from, which was essentially a ruined country where income was never guaranteed and a lot of people are going hungry. I think that that's the concession you make and you have to kind of live with it, I think. And I'm hoping that maybe I'll get to retire earlier than the average American would. I'm hoping, you know, if I'm blessed enough. But if not, certainly, I think that I'm willing to make other concessions. I mean, even if it means like if five to 10 years from now, I'm like, you know, I want to spend more time with my family. And if that means that I have to go and you work corporate job where my experience and my skill set will be highly valued and well compensated, but I'll get my weekends. I'm, I'm okay with that too. I'm not too stuck on being anywhere. I don't have like a, a specific goal in mind, kind of going along with the flow. And here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers, and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit. Okay, so it's free to sign up. Yeah, we're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to, say, $300,000. And we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be, you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. Especially because you're still, I would say, quote unquote, early years. But I mean, you're coming to a point where I think you have to decide whether if you want to keep growing revenue in the business or you want to spend time with your family, which is the reason you created your business, right? In a way, if I had to take an objective view of this, I know what the right answer is, right? I think the right answer is, look, Igor, just don't be a dummy. Stop being idealistic. Let go of this boutique agency thing. Just expand your agency, you know, scale it up and then allow other people to just do their jobs and run, you know, run the company, take more time off with your family. But again, the reason why I took on the whole kind of proprietary sole venture, right? The reason why I do business is to show my kids that, that it's doable, right? And I want to make sure that the brand is credible, that I I don't want it to suffer. I think that the best way to do it is to do it through a boutique agency style. I don't believe in the large agency model. I don't think that it's good for clients. It could be good for, for the agency, but I don't think it's good for clients. Really, there are, again, these are like kind of like the uh, multidimensional thoughts that you have as a, you know, as a business owner where you have to be say like, okay, well, am I really comfortable with making this decision or not? And right now, you know, scaling up into a larger agency is not something I'm comfortable. I mean, do you ever ask your kids if you spend enough time with them? 
I don't think they necessarily notice it. I think it's just me knowing that I like to spend more time with them, you know, to give them more of my time. But I don't think that they notice it necessarily. Again, this is the wonderful thing about having multiple children is that they, you know, they interact with each other, they play with each other. Again, my wife is, she's at home all the time. So she's able to kind of help them out, you know. So I don't think they necessarily notice it. And I do try to do a good enough job, you know, to where they still feel like I'm part of their life. I'm, you know, actively involved. But maybe that's changing. You know, as they get older, I can certainly sense that, you know, my oldest child, my daughter, she notices that I spend more time with the toddler, for example. And this is, you know, this literally just came to light just a, maybe a month or two ago where she sees that we treat toddlers differently and for good reason, you know, they're babies. So you kind of have to help them develop, you know, you have to spend more time to them with them and, you know, play with them more and talk to them more. But it's interesting that the questions do pop up, right? She's like, you know, well, why do you play with Logan more? Why are you telling me to do this, but not telling the baby to clean up, you know? So like, you have to explain this, but at the same time, it makes you feel bad as a parent, right? As a parent, I'm like, well, you're right. I mean, I, I really love to spend more time with you, but I also have to go out and, you know, make sure that the business makes money. So what do you think you're going to do I mean, going forward then? I mean, do you want to spend more time with them or do you want to keep growing the business? At the end of the day, it's always about the family. It's always going to be what's best for the family. And whether that means that, hey, I'm going to keep the business as is, you know, I'm going to keep us comfortable, essentially keep its own like a glass ceiling on it, right? If that's the best way for me to make sure that my family is happy and well taken care of, I'm okay with that. Right now, I do think that that's probably the best thing. But again, that could change. You know, look, a year or two from now, I might figure out something where I say, hey, I can retire in five years if I put even more time into this project. I could be the agency or it could be a different venture. You don't know. And again, like I said, I think that the way life develops and the way life unfolds and the opportunities in business, they're ever present. I mean, I could literally, it wouldn't be far-fetched for a client to ask me to come join them as a partner, bring my entire team as, you know, to join them as an internal marketing team. Would I turn that down? I mean, I would consider it, right? I mean, if it's something that helps my family and my team members' financial situation, I would certainly, you know, some mull that over. But again, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's why I don't try to play clairvoyant. You know, I just make sure that things are good and set right now and that whatever next steps I may be able to take, that they are calculated and they're, you know, well-informed. I mean, I'm just trying to dive into it because again, this is a point that a lot of people get into a few years into their business. It's like, do I keep putting in as many hours or is it worth like taking less money and spending more time with my family? Right. And everyone has different priorities, you know, so it's just trying to figure out what your plan is there and maybe how other entrepreneurs could understand like what they could learn from that. You know, is it worth me putting in 80 hours a week or should I just do 40 hours a week and take less pay? So it's trying to understand that and what your ultimate goal is. So I was just trying to dive in there and appreciate you being open about it. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that that's the most interesting part of the entrepreneurial journey, right? Which is the uh, the kind of the personal life behind it and the decision making that goes into it. You know, I think that's probably what's going to resonate with a lot of people. I mean, some people are, are out there, you know, they're single entrepreneurs, right? They're, I mean, they don't have family obligations. And, you know, certainly if I were single, I probably would have 120 hour work weeks. <laughs> Sounds like, right? I mean, if you're already doing this much, you're already doing more than most people who are single. So. I mean, there are definitely possibilities like that. But what I was going to say is I might have been even kind of doing different types of ventures, right? I probably would take more risk. And right now, I'm very risk averse in a way that it grounds you, right? Like family life grounds you and you, you basically, you know, yeah, you're kind of limited in your decision making, but at least you make smarter choices. Whereas if I were, you know, I would take far, far more risk if I were single and I didn't have family obligations because I'm like, well, if I can't eat, if I have to eat, you know, top ramen for a month or a couple of months. I'll be okay with that, but I'm not okay with feeding my kids top ramen for a month, you know? Well, are your kids growing up better than you did in Russia, I guess, up till 13 years old? 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I guess you could tell them stories about Russia if they ever try to guilt trip you into working, right? <laughs> no, my kids are wonderful. I mean, they are such great kids. There's one thing that I'm very happy about in my life is that, you know, I do believe that kids are a reflection of who you are. And my kids are so wonderful. And I'm like, thank God, that means that I'm at least an okay person. You know, at least I'm not bad. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. If someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out? Thanks, Austin. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, you've been terrific throughout the entire process. You know, I did enjoy the conversations you've had on other podcasts with your other guests and helping out your group. If anybody wants to reach out to me, they can send me an email. It's Igor at AvedonMarketingGroup.com. I'll be more than happy to help out. Free consultation. And again, that was a group called 10 that I did with Igor. We're doing a lineup of different websites that some of our members had. And I haven't had a repeat guest doing that before, but again, I, I just thought it was so helpful that I'd be happy to do that with you again, just running through, because we were just running through websites. And that was kind of fun, to be honest, you know, making sure I'm getting questions in and being able to help the members. So I appreciate you helping on that portion as well. So thank you. Yep, you got it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Igor. Have a good one. Thanks, Austin. Guess what, Patreon members? I got our next five group calls already lined up for you. We got Jonathan Cogley from episode 85 taking your questions on how to find other entrepreneurs to partner with. Then we got Aviv Shogli for you, who's an entrepreneur from Israel. He's already had two successful business exits, and his interview is really inspiring. Next, we got Lisa Wise from episode 37, where she'll tell you exactly how she grew her real estate management company from the ground up and how you can too. Next, we got Ron Holt from episode 197 telling you how he grew two maids in a mop, not to be confused with two girls and one cup. And he basically grew his single location cleaning business to now a franchise model that covers 81 markets in the US and he'll tell you how you can do the exact same thing. And last but not least, and by popular demand, we have Doug Smith from episode 182 which might have been our most open interview of all time. Well, anyhow, I hope you join us on these calls. I only invite my favorite guests back to do these group calls, and we try to have a good time while also getting your business questions answered. Plus, if you ever miss a call, we've got a back catalog of every group call. So if you're tired of, I don't know, being a passive pussy, then come join us. I mean, are you just going to keep listening to this podcast and not do anything? Or are you going to be proactive and get in the game? Well, hopefully it's the latter because it helps you and me. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member and you're not already, then go visit our website at millionaire-interviews.com and sign up today where you'll get instant access to all past group calls plus our special Patreon episodes. So hopefully you join us on the group call and become a member today.